0: The financial system is effectively, or financial markets are effectively just an allocation mechanism for society's resources. And so when financial systems go wrong and create imbalances or create the wrong incentives in the system, you can have quite catastrophic effects. And this is why I've looked at this particular question of the China-US relationship from a financial markets point of view, because I think that actually, that this is, is a really important topic and it's very much underappreciated on both sides, even by a lot of top policymakers involved in making key decisions.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures
2: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary people from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Kevin Koldine, to host a series of in-depth conversations to help uncover and explain new ideas to make you a better investor. In the series, Kevin will be speaking to authors of new books and research papers to better understand the global economy and the dynamics that shape it, so that we can all successfully navigate the challenges within it. And with that, please welcome Kevin Coldiron.
3: All right, Niels, uh, thank you for the introduction, and uh, welcome everyone who's uh, listening out there. We are uh, very fortunate today to have with us James Falk, who's written financial cold war a view of sino-us relations from financial markets Um, we all know that uh prediction is uh, difficult sometimes dangerous Um, but one prediction i'm pretty comfortable making is that the relationship between china and the u.s is going to be central to all of our economic lives going forward and um, we're really fortunate uh, to have james with us today um, to talk about that relationship and how it it uh, could and, and should change over, over time. So, James, uh, welcome to uh, Top Traders Unflugged.
0: Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Kevin. So, could we, I
3: mean, you've got a unique personal perspective and background. I think that's what makes the book so interesting. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your personal life, your uh, professional life, and then, you know, why you decided to write the book?
0: You know, mine's a very typical Hong Kong story. So I come from a mixed Chinese-British family. Uh, I grew up in Hong Kong, spent some time in boarding school in the UK, did some undergraduate in Beijing, then started working as as a banker in an investment bank in London. And eventually I found myself advising uh, after I moved back to Hong Kong with my wife in 2008, found myself advising the London on the London Metal Exchange acquisition for the Hong Kong Exchange, and ended up working there for almost a decade. And through that, had the opportunity to interact with a lot of policymakers in China, Hong Kong, in the U.S. and internationally, as we were. It's actually sitting in the middle of a lot of the major China capital markets internationalization moves like Stock Connect, Bond Connect, which were launched during that period. And so I had this kind of seat at the table view of what was going on. And also, you know it happens that my my wife's American, and you know I had a lot of opportunity through her and her family to spend time over here and managed to get a lot of personal insights on the US and thinking over here that I I might not otherwise have got.
3: Yeah, that, um, and I wanna circle back to this, but that balance of perspectives, I think is what I really appreciated from the book. The fact that, you know, you talk about both systems um, and you're critical of both, both systems, but you present in particularly the, the view of Chinese um, history and, and, and politics um, in, in ways that I hadn't heard of before. And so I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about that. But, you know, I, I guess one thing that I, I'm curious about, and I'm sure our, our listeners would be, is, you know, you're, you're a Chinese national, um, and the book is fairly open in a lot of ways. Is your book available in China? I mean, if I, And if I went to China and, and bought this book, would I be reading the same edition that I get if I buy it in New York?
0: It's in the bookstores in Hong Kong. Uh, there's no Chinese translation yet. Maybe if it does really well, you know, there's an opportunity that might be someday, and I hope it will be available in China. Um, and, you know,
3: you... Like I said, the book is fairly balanced. I mean, you you're, um, you talk about Chinese history and and politics, and you're um, you know in quite an open way. So, if it was available in China, would it be an edited version? For instance, you talk about Tiananmen Square. Um, would that have to come out of the the book? Do you think?
0: I don't know. Um, I guess <laughs> we'll wait and see. I, I would say <laughs> I would say though that I, I would say that that. You know, being a reader of both languages, if you translate from one language literally into another, you quite often miss a lot of the meaning and particularly the nuance in one particular language. I I know friends who've written books and, and very successful books who have written basically completely different books in the two languages, not because of any worry about censorship but because you just have to write in a very different way for different audiences to get your meaning across
3: do you have a sense for how well the book is um, you know doing in Hong Kong
0: um, well I haven't been completely panned yet which uh, which is a relief <laughs> and a few a few people have even made some very very kind and complimentary comments about it um, okay, so
3: you know the book is called Financial Cold War. And, and you know, I think the the key bits of it deal with with finance. and I, so I want to kind of um, get there, but I, I would like to start off sort of more broadly uh, because in some sense that's that's kind of how you tackle the book. Um, what I if I was making an elevator pitch to readers, I'd say that what I really appreciated is the history and the balance. So you don't just say, hey, Here's the relationship between China and the U.S., and this is what we need to do to fix it. You walk us to that point. How we got to the current relationship by talking about um, history, and um, and as I said, it's it's balanced, and you're, you're you're critical of both both systems or aspects of both systems. So, if we could, I'd like to just pick out a couple sort of historical uh, points that where you presented a perspective that I hadn't heard about and. Maybe just ask you to elaborate a little bit on that, and then we'll kind of work our way from that to the to the kind of current recommendations. So, uh, for instance, Tiananmen Square, you talk about that, um, and you talk about the demonstrators there. Um, you know, students at Beijing University not really demonstrating for democracy, uh, more like, hey we want more freedom in choosing our jobs after we graduate. And then the second thing you talk about in terms of that is the reaction of the Chinese leadership at the time was very much informed by what had happened to the country during the Great Leap Forward. I mean, you talk about China experiencing a virtual societal collapse during the Great Leap Forward, and that concern, you know, informed how they reacted. So would you mind just... Kind of expanding on those points a little bit for our, our listeners.
0: Look, I mean, I I was I, I was a child. I was studying in Hong Kong when Tiananmen happened, so it was something that was very real to me. We, we watched this on television. Uh, there, there was a huge outpouring of of sympathy and grief in Hong Kong, mainly, I, I think, because that it also highlighted or, or it, it captured a lot of the fears in, in Hong Kong society at the time and you know, my, my view on my, my view on political systems is that every every country arrives at its own in its own way and it comes out of its own historical and cultural context and when you look at the reasons why you have overturns of regimes throughout history it's not necessarily because of the particular governance system that exists in that country. It tends to be because of very mundane livelihood issues. It's you know whether people are able to feed themselves, whether they have access to opportunity, whether the hives are getting Good, uh, better, or whether they're getting worse. Whether the prospects for their children are, are getting better or worse. And you know, this is something which you know I, I've seen again more recently in in Hong Kong, in many of the in, in many of the drivers of the unrest that we've seen there. In that, there's a I think quite a primitive. Narrative in in much of the much of the international press and commentary on what's going on that you know it's all about you know the, the political system or democracy or or you know things like that. If you're on the ground, actually, the thing that most people care about are. You know, are, are they able to get their kids into good schools? Are they going to be able to afford to pay the school fees? Are they going to be able to afford to get on the housing ladder? Does, their, you know, do, are they able to live with a, a level of comfort and dignity? Th- these are the things that that really matter, and these are the things that financial systems are responsible for. The financial system is effectively, or financial markets are effectively just an allocation mechanism for society's resources. And so when financial systems go wrong and create imbalances or create the wrong incentives in the system, you can have quite catastrophic effects. And this is why I've looked at this particular question of, the, the China-U.S. relationship from a financial markets point of view, because I, I think that actually that this is, is a really important topic, and it, it's very much underappreciated on, on both sides, even by a lot of top policymakers involved in making key decisions.
3: So, it, just picking up on that point about Hong Kong, can you... You know, it, it's been, as you said, I think in in the Western press, it's you know, "quote unquote" pro democracy uh, demonstrations. But in the book, you talk about how radically Hong Kong society has changed in the last few decades, and you know, it's just become a very exceptionally unequal um, place. Can you can you just give us a little more kind of color on that and that you know why that might have led to people being kind of sort of dissatisfied?
0: Well, Hong Kong is not unique. The, these things, the, these things are going on around the world. It, it so happens that we, we, in Hong Kong, hew to a very free market laissez-faire philosophy of economics and governance, and so there's the very low rates of taxation. There's no taxation effectively on on income derived from capital, and so. Many of the inequalities that you see arising around the world just have arisen more quickly in in Hong Kong than than in other places. And so in many ways, you can look at the, the events in Hong Kong as being predictive if other places continue following down the same track.
3: Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of, um, it, it's just interesting because, you know, we're all focused on what's happening in our own particular society. So wealth inequality gets a lot of play over here, but, but not so much um, in China. I think partly maybe because the data isn't um, as readily available. And you actually frame a couple of more recent events, I think, in that context where, you know, China's kind of cracked down on both tech companies and for-profit education Companies and and the narrative that we heard here is more like, oh, hey, they were never serious about capitalism. Um, You know, the, the government's intervening to direct capital. And you framed those, I guess that government action more in the context of, hey, actually, they need to take some action to rebalance inequality in the system. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on, on on that perspective of, and particularly for the for-profit education companies?
0: Well, well you're, you're right that you're, you're right that this issue of, of wealth and income inequality is not as acute a political issue in mainland China as it is in the United States here, but levels of wealth and income inequality and data is available. Um, are showing that China has now reached levels of wealth and income inequality that have even surpassed the, the US. The, the reason why it's not as acute a political issue is because the, the economic development has happened over a very short space of time in China. And over the last 40 years, the vast majority of Chinese people have experienced a significant increase in their standard of living. So the tra- trajectory has still been good for most people. I think that this is something that is going to become more of a political issue. And in fact, even by the time that President C came into power in 2012, this was beginning to become an issue, uh, along with, you know, frankly, quite rampant levels of of corruption in many parts of the the system. And so his administration has pushed to crack down, largely because these problems were starting to undermine the legitimacy of government. And there, there are many different perspectives on why it's being done, how it's being done, and so forth. But by and large, these policies have been extremely popular in China. But when you look at the issue of the platform monopolies, the, the big internet platforms, this is not a this is not a unique China phenomenon. This is a global phenomenon. And actually the, the United States so far has really failed or abdicated its responsibility for controlling or, or better regulating the, these platforms. China has taken quite a proactive approach and you know you, you can quibble about you know, the lack of due process in doing that and that, that's what a lot of international investors are spooked by because the the Chinese system, Allows you to cut through, or allows the government to cut through all the niceties, niceties of due legal process, and get to the, these problems very quickly. I, I think that that may not be the best best approach, in that sometimes by cutting through due process, you miss things, or you just undermine systems where you. I mean, China's economy has really been powered by private enterprise for the last 20 years. And if entrepreneurs, individual entrepreneurs cannot be secure in their property rights, then will they still have the incentives to innovate and and drive enterprise? Just that you you brought up due process and kind of
3: rule of law and that that plays a big role in a lot of your recommendations and, and that we'll get to. Um, but you also, you know, kind of say that that there's, a, a I guess, a skepticism or, a, yeah, a skepticism, I guess, of kind of the quote-unquote, um, you know, rule of law or laws-based system uh, within China. Um, is, is that right, Am I that, that, that it is kind of viewed with some skepticism? It's not seen as kind of core to economic development in the same way that it would be
0: in the West? They, they run a very different system. So... If you look at the history of China, even going back to di- the dynastic period, China has a huge firewall between the state and private enterprise. And you know, there, there was a there was a very brief period post the fall of the Qing Dynasty under the nationalist government where enterprise and government became intertwined and. There were rampant levels of corruption, and the, the standard of living for many of China's populace was quite poor. This is what drove the, the Communist Party into power in 1949. If you look at the, the United States system, it, it's a different it, it has a different history. And you know, government and Private business are deeply intertwined through campaign funding, through the revolving door of personnel switches between public office and private enterprise. I, I'm, I think both systems have their pros and cons, but you know, China, China's system, you know, hews much more to its traditional system of government where. The, the government wants to keep the influence of private enterprise on the policies of the state to a minimum controllable level and so when you look at when you look at you, you are specifically about the the crackdown on the for-profit education companies you know the, these if you look at China today, I mean, they, they face a huge demographic cliff. People are not having enough babies. Last year, the, the fertility rate fell to 1.3, which is the lowest ever, <laughs> far below re- replacement rate of 2.1 per woman that, that's required, and so one of the big pressures that's putting people off having children friends of mine friends of mine are dealing with this you know people are people are having to buy these really expensive apartments in particular school districts in Beijing to try and get their kids into the the better schools because the the system for you know the competition for university places at the top universities is so fierce and the the for-profit after-school tuition centers effectively play on this competition, play on this fear, but they're, they're very expensive, and so this creates an additional pressure on parents and, and families. I don't know whether I don't know whether it was the right answer to to crack down and, and ban them, but you you can certainly see. the the reasons why the the government did so
3: yeah and i um i I just thought that was an interesting way to frame it so something that i hadn't seen as as trying to deal with um you know inequalities in the system um and and that's certainly something that we uh, that that we've got over here. I, as you were telling that story, I, I I remembered an incident that happened to me a few years ago. I was uh, teaching a course in uh, Qingdao, um, and the this was uh, four or five years ago, and the the locals were very friendly, but also you know not they they, they didn't talk much about uh, politics. Um, the only thing that someone said to me. Was on the back of my phone. I had a picture of my kids. I've got four kids, and one woman said, "Well, when I see your family, it makes me sad because you know I only have. I'm an only child. All my friends are only children, and you know we really. I just I miss that. Um, And so that that was the only kind of even a veiled criticism of of the kind of political situation there, but. you know despite that people still obviously aren't in a position economically that they feel they can have have bigger children uh, bigger families even though um they, they could if they wanted now
0: this is a glo- this is a global phenomenon um but i mean the, the one child thing has become somewhat embedded in in society not just because of the the financial and other pressures and you know higher level of female education and participation in the workforce in China, which is a global phenomena. but you've had this one you had this one child policy for more than two decades. and you know after that period of time that sort of becomes normalized or it's a normative phenomenon. And so people don't necessarily expect to see people with with lots of lots of siblings. Okay, let's um,
3: let's pivot a little bit and start working our way towards um, kind of the financial system and the financial relationship between China and the U.S. So I think we're all familiar uh, with the, the notion that the U.S. has had a balance of payment deficit with China for, for a long time, and that's been a political flashpoint from from time to time, certainly with the Trump administration. You kind of say, hey, actually, if you think about it, it's not so much that the U.S. has a balance of payment deficit with China, but it's really a balance of payment deficit with the rest of the world. Um, can you explain what you mean by that?
0: Well, th- this is a figure that's moved around around a bit over the years, but I mean, China basically fixed their currency against the U.S. dollar for a decade between '95 and 2005, and th- this meant that you know. As China's economy grew, as productivity grew, the the currency became seriously undervalued. In 2006, uh, I think China's current account surplus got to something like around 10% of GDP. By 2018, actually, China's current account surplus as a percent of GDP had fallen to 0.2%. So it, it effectively had become flat. But yet, at that right. time, it was still running 400-odd billion of surplus against the US. So, that, that meant that effectively, China was running a deficit against the rest of the world. Now, as, you know, since COVID and, and the, the sort of various disruptions that, that that's inflicted, China's current account surplus has bounced back. I think it ended up last year at a record level of 670-odd billion billion dollars. But really, the the issue is not necessarily so much China's surplus anymore, because China is consuming more. Common prosperity is a drive to redistribute China's wealth so that the bottom half or, or the bottom part of China's population can consume more. So, in that sense, the problem that I think needs to be looked at is why is the U.S. running these persistent deficits, and much of that lies in the fact of the U.S. dollar serving as this global utility in trade and investment. That the, in order to keep it serving in that function and to provide liquidity to the rest of the world, the U.S. has to run constant balance of payments deficits to supply dollars to the rest of the world. And the, the the problem with that is it's all well and good when the US economy is growing at least as fast as the rest of the world, but the US is now a big, mature economy and other countries have been growing growing a lot faster, which means that the US has had to go into higher and higher levels of debt, which has created a fundamental fragility at the center of the US financial system, which again, because the US system's centrality in the global financial system has created fundamental fragilities at the center of the global financial system, which is the theme of your book. The, the other issue also is really the uneven impact of this in the US, because you know th- this is, not been a terrible thing for everyone in the US by any means. If you've been, over the last 40 years, the wealthy shareholder of a large US corporation that's been able to take advantage of this phenomenon, i.e. the structural overvaluation of the US dollar because of the demand internationally for the dollar in trade and investment, then you've done quite well. Because these companies have been able to offshore their production to lower cost centers with undervalued currencies quite often, and they've been able to lower their costs, improve profit margins, and the share prices have done remarkably well. If on the other hand, during the same period you've been a US manufacturing worker, your story has been one of displacement, job loss, or at best long-term wage stagnation. And this is what's been one of the big issues that's been driving huge wealth and income disparities and widening disparities in in the united states
3: yeah and so essentially that's a um that's a, a cost to the um to the us of the dollar being a the global reserve currency and and that's a important theme of your book i mean we when when the dollar is talked about as the global reserve currency it's always you know, or not always, but certainly for the most time framed in terms of the advantages it it confers on the U.S. You know, it's our currency, your problem. Um, and you're saying, hey, actually, now the the overall costs of the dollar uh, financial system are greater than the benefits uh, to the U.S. So are there, are there other costs that you have in mind aside from the fact that it's, uh, you know, made manufacturing in the U.S. uncompetitive and, and led to kind of reinforcing wealth inequality are there other costs that you have in mind or are those the the primary ones well
0: well, a a very topical a very topical one is actually the 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 power that it gives the the u.s over its strategic rivals and this is i think what one of the key impediments to ceding this position of centrality for the dollar If you look at what's happened in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there have been massive sanctions levied over the Russians. Their central banks, foreign exchange reserves have been frozen. These are unprecedented moves. And the the reason why these moves can be made is because the, the United States and the developed West largely control the international infrastructure that support the global financial markets, the infrastructure of payment networks, of international depositories, of global custodian banks, and and so forth. Uh, I think you you have to have have a take a step back and look at the the consequences of weaponizing the the global financial commons. And and I think that, that this is something which is not necessarily particularly thoroughly thought through. If you look at conventional warfare, there is an established principle of non-combatant immunity. No such principle or no such rule exists in financial warfare. And so if you look at the Russia situation, that the first order effects of the, the sanctions were that you had a spike in oil prices, and you had a short-term run on the ruble. Subsequently, you've seen violent protests break out in Sri Lanka, which has no direct no direct involvement in the Ukraine situation whatsoever as a result of the spike in fuel prices and fuel price inflation that their people are experiencing. And so Sri Lanka has just been kind of sideswiped in this process of the second order effect. And if you think about the third order effects, given the way in which global markets are intertwined, the effects can be extremely unpredictable. But you know, if you consider that you have a whole bunch of countries, export nations, whether it's in Asia or Latin America, who are selling their commodities and their labor in return for generally US dollars, if they lose confidence that come the rainy day or if they happen to get on the wrong side of the US, that they will be able to access those savings that they've accrued, then are they still going to be willing to sell their goods? Are they still going to be willing to sell their labor to support the lifestyles of the developed? West, and then what would that do for inflation? How would that impact social stability in the United States and Western Europe? I, I think that when you get into when you get into the weaponization of, of the financial commons, it's something that can have huge, unpredictable consequences that can be absolutely catastrophic and which are quite indis- indiscriminate in the, way, in the way that their costs fall. I think that, that that is a big disadvantage of the system because by granting to any one country that power, you also create insecurity for all other countries who are stakeholders in the system, and it undermines trust. In many ways, the the tensions that that you see between China and the U.S. today are a direct consequence of of the undermining of of trust between the two countries. Now, let's take the China example. China has got a very rapidly aging population. They have underdeveloped domestic capital markets, which has meant that most people savings have been skewed into residential real estate. Residential real estate accounts for 78% of Chinese urban household wealth. That compares with around 35% in the United States. The second biggest pool of China's savings is in cash deposits at banks. This is a pool of 35% trillion U.S. dollars of Chinese savings in the form of bank deposits. If you think about the needs of that aging generation to fund themselves through their retirements, what will hopefully be a long and, and healthy retirement for all of them, they need desperately to get those bank deposits into high yielding, better returning capital markets assets. China's domestic markets are very large, but they're not anywhere near large enough and deep enough to absorb that amount of capital within any short space of time. And so China needs to find channels for that investment to get out into international capital markets. The problem facing China today is that they've seen, as with the Russians, that given the West's control of the financial infrastructure supporting any Chinese outbound investment outside of mainland China beyond Hong Kong. They've just realized that they cannot put themselves at that financial security risk. This is bad for China, and it's frankly bad for the West, who would be more than happy to receive that that Chinese investment. Think of all the bridges and roads and railways and, and upgrades in infrastructure that you could achieve in the United States if you were able to access that capital. At the moment, the the fact that that there isn't a a secure way for China to be able to get that capital out means that China is stuck with pursuing international investment through Chinese corporations and foreign direct investment, such as things like the the Belt and Road Initiative. The, the the, The problem with that is that, you know, and China has a lot of state-owned enterprises as well. So these companies going and buying whole companies or large assets in other countries inevitably leads to sensitivities about the level of Chinese government influence, the level of Chinese government control, technology transfer, jobs transfer. If you had a thousand Mrs. Wangs from Chongqing buying a few shares of Alphabet or Amazon, nobody's going to care. So I, I to summarize, I, I would say that that the costs of the, the dollar system, that the, there are macroeconomic costs which bear on lifestyles and, and you know, issues like inequality in, in the United States. But that the, the system itself creates fundamental insecurities. In the global financial commons, which are in many cases driving significant temp- tensions and conflicts between the, the two countries. And what's more is that you know, some people will argue that, well, you know, it's better kind of pursuing this financial warfare rather than you know getting getting the guns and tanks out. But the, the reality is that I, I don't think that financial warfare prevents that outcome. It's just part of a, a tit for tat escalation that leads you onto a path to a not a very to not a very good place, and so, and and in many ways actually probably exacerbate the, the tensions. So I think that these issues have to be thought about in a more holistic and mature way, and ultimately I think it's in every everyone's interest to see a reform of the system in a way that can give all stakeholders in it greater security.
3: Well, it's uh, there's a, there's a lot uh, to unpack there and there's different ways I could take the conversation but I guess that that sort of balanced and and nuanced thinking is what I what I really liked about the book and I know you said um, before we started the show that you've been talking to people at the Federal Reserve and in the US government so hopefully that perspective is is getting through a little bit, um, but I, I, as you were just talking about it, the analogy that popped into my mind is, you know, kind of the Federal Reserve's impact on the U.S. economy, and that it's um, in the short term, it's used its its power to, um, you know, to kind of stabilize markets, but in the long term, the, that um, those actions have basically. Created fragility in the system and actually undermined its own power long term, and I think that's really sounds like really what you're saying with the dollar system is that it confers a lot of short term power on on the u s to in this case say freeze russia's central bank's assets, which seem like a a powerful weapon, and they are, but that the the kind of butterfly ripple effects create you know danger long term that could be even worse. So let's, let's use that as a, as a way to kind of segue into what I think is the, I don't know if you would call it the central recommendation of your book, but certainly something I hadn't heard before, which is this notion of, hey, let's find ways to deepen the interdependencies between China and the U.S. And you have this concept of mutually assured, uh, financial mutually assured destruction, which sounds kind of scary, but in, in actual fact, I think it's quite a, a positive um, idea. So, could you could you explain to to the listeners what what you mean by that and how you could see that eventually developing?
0: Well, this 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 concept arises out of your work, work that I did while I was at the Hong Kong Exchange. We, we put in place the, this scheme called Stock Connect, connecting Hong Kong's market with the mainland Chinese market, that allowed two way investment flow between the markets from each other's market the the way that that has developed i think you know, gives i think a, a template for how these issues might be thought about today 70% of all international investors holdings of chinese domestic shares are held through Hong Kong exchange and its clearinghouse. And the reason why international investors choose to go that route rather than to go directly into the onshore market is because they believe that Hong Kong, with its essentially English common law system and international standards of regulation, gives them greater legal and regulatory protections for their property rights versus going directly to the mainland market. But you know, ultimately, laws and regulations can be changed, and you know, the, the relationship between countries and levels of trust, there's an ebb and flow to that. The, the system, though, actually under, underlying that system, there is a deeper structural protection for investors on both sides. The the structural protection there is that when an international investor sells his or her shares in mainland China through the Connect scheme, the obligation to deliver them back their money falls on Hong Kong's clearinghouse. If the mainland authorities were to prevent the Hong Kong clearinghouse from Fulfilling that obligation, it would put the clearinghouse into default, which would mean that the clearinghouse could not fulfill its obligation to deliver back money to mainland Chinese investors who had invested in Hong Kong. So, to put a, a rather crude sort of description on it, the, the protection for everyone within that system is lies in the fact that everyone's actually got a gun against each other's heads. And so and so th- this is something, as China pursues the, the next phase of its capital markets internationalization, particularly in the current atmosphere of geopolitical tensions and, and lack of trust, I think financial market infrastructures can, can play a big role in creating structural protections for both sides so that the the two sides can interact in financial markets in a way that both sides feel secure.
3: When I was uh, just following up on that, because you you did talk about, or as I was reading about this idea of using kind of Hong Kong depository accounts, the thing that popped in my mind was, okay, yeah, it's. you know one country two systems but in the end of the day it's the one country that that matters and um well i think what you're saying if, if i understand it correctly is yes that's right but as long as the obligations are kind of both ways if if the chinese gov you know if the chinese government decided to freeze foreign accounts that creates problems for the clearinghouse, which in terms creates problems for chinese investors is that that's what you're saying right
0: Exactly.
3: So for to, to kind of extend that, so for this notion of, you know, financial mutually assured destruction to be, uh, to work, does that require there to be kind of a, a rough balance of investment kind of going both ways that's held through, in this case, the um, depository accounts in Hong Kong? So that, you know, if, if we decided to, to blow each other up, the, then the losses are kind of fairly balanced?
0: Well, I mean, it, it, doesn't nece- it doesn't necessarily have to be entirely equal, but it, it needs to be a system in which every party to it has enough to lose that they have no incentive to blow it up <laughs> gotcha. effectively. And, and so when you, when you take it a step further, let, let's take China's situation today. So as the population ages, a, a China, like the United States, a, has an unfunded public pension scheme. Which means that inevitably China's government is going to have to issue more debt in order to fund itself through meeting the, the increase in social welfare spending costs. And so it needs to internationalise demand for its sovereign security. What well, one of the big challenges that China faces today is that it doesn't international Clearing houses and other major users of collateral don't accept Chinese government securities to meet their margin requirements. So and wh- why you, why you think,
3: is that? Why do they not um, accept?
0: A lot of it, frankly, is just habit, right? I mean, the the I mean, the, the, there's a there's a tendency the, there's a tendency to hew to kind of what what's tried and known, and so it's not just. Chinese government bonds that are not accepted widely as good collateral, you you see that with a lot of countries across Asia. Their sovereign securities are not widely accepted as good collateral in international markets either. And so by enabling Chinese government securities to be accepted as good collateral, to be able to get short-term liquidity against them in international markets, that could help accelerate the uptake in demand for China's sovereign debt, which means that that there's a very natural nexus between Hong Kong possibly as the depository center for those because everyone's happy to take a pledge of collateral under Hong Kong law. It's an English common law system effectively, It's, it's well understood. The nexus between that and the centres that use that collateral, the largest of which obviously is, is London because of the London Clearinghouse's position as the 90% of the, the global swaps market, or the clearer for 90% of the global swaps market, that natural nexus could provide the mutual benefits and protections that I talked about that, that exist in, in the Stock Connect system.
3: So your vision is one where, say, the London Clearinghouse accepts Chinese government bonds as collateral, which then, you know, kind of further deepens the financial interconnectedness between China and, and the Western financial system, and therefore, um, you know, kind of reduces the incentives for both sides to, you know, kind of engage in the sort of, weaponization of, of currency as as that, that we've seen kind of recently is that, is that broadly speaking what you're what you're trying to get at that
0: that's that's exactly what I'm trying to get at
3: um, what's your take on how likely we are to go down that path because honestly it feels that <laughs> we may we may go the opposite way right that uh, um, that we may have a kind of competing financial systems, uh, like the, an RMB system that gets developed, and a U.S. Uh, dollar-based system that, that that competes instead of, um, you know, works together.
0: That that's the key risk that I was concerned enough about to be motivated to write this book, because I mean, ultimate, ultimately, if. The, the two countries and other countries can't cooperate and coordinate to, to restructure the system. You, you may go into, you, you may go into a, a sort of more fragmented system of global reserve currency. So your, your colleague at Ber- Berkeley, Barry Eichengreen, co-authored this paper that, that the IMF recently put out arguing that the global currency regime or or the central bank reserves are already fragmenting into multiple different currencies. I I think that will happen to an extent. But when you look at market shocks, still ultimately, liquidity congregates generally around a a single or very small group of of currencies. And the, the reason why they do that is because of essentially the, the the scale efficiencies that particularly the, the US dollar enjoys. Because you, you have a whole system of collateral globally, which depends on US Treasuries serving as risk-free assets. You have commodity contracts that are priced in US dollars. You have interest rate contracts. You have FX contracts that all reference the dollar. That is an incredibly powerful ecosystem that entrenches the, the dollar as the globally predominant currency. But you can also argue that the, the US dollar has been through a number of tipping points already that would or might have been expected to precipitate its downfall. You know, whether that's in terms of the the extraordinary level of government debt that exists today, or the fairly gratuitous monetary expansion that that you've seen, particularly over the last two years, to the, the US's abuse of its position to weaponize the dollar against its strategic rivals. Now, the dollar has so far has defied the doomsayers, but ultimately, and we've seen this time and again through history with rises and falls of global reserve currency, whether it's the pound sterling or the gilder, There will be a, there will come a tipping point at which the dollar cedes that global reserve role to another currency, uh, unless the, the stakeholders in the system come together to plan what the future of that system and what the the next reserve might be, then you, you could see, A, in, you know, in the short term when it happens, very catastrophic market volatility, which will have social consequences and you know, societal consequences. But you know, in, in the long run, if another country's currency ascends to usurp the US dollar's role then that country and the the infrastructures that come to serve that particular unit in the global monetary system will inherit a huge amount of power that the U.S. enjoys today. And I, I would ask U.S. policymakers to think very seriously. Okay, you can do nothing right now, but how would you feel if another country, possibly a a geostrategic rival, came to dominate the global financial system to the extent that the US does today. And I think that it would be, or it might be argued, that it would be in the US's enlightened self-interest to take a proactive role in pursuing a, a more neutral global financial commons in fact, you know this is something which the Chinese have have offered. If you if you recall, in 2009, just after the the global financial crisis, Governor Zhou, the the previous governor of the People's Bank of China, made a speech in which he advocated not the renminbi B to take a larger role in as a global reserve currency, but for the IMF's special drawing rights to take a larger role. And that, that's a position that was reiterated by his successor Yi Gang in the middle of 2020 in a Financial Times op-ed article. And I, I think that, that there is the opportunity, that there is the opportunity now to find a, a more neutral way forward not just for the two countries, but for all stakeholders in the international financial system. And um,
3: I, I remember that that quite well, and um, I remember thinking, well, the U.S. will never kind of voluntarily give up what it perceives to be, um, you know, a, a powerful lever. Um, but that that may change now, um, and I, I agree with you. I think the freezing of central bank assets. By uh, of Russian central bank assets is is going to be looked at historically as the key moment of you know the peak in the dollar system. I mean, if you're a reserve manager, really anywhere outside the close nexus of U.S. allies, you have to be. You know, I think it. it, it you have to be thinking of a way to diversify your your reserve assets. Do you think that China would still support? That kind of notion of a um, maybe not an SDR but a, a a kind of a more neutral reserve currency. They'd still you know if the U.S. said, "Hey, we're willing to consider that proposal," would they would they come to the table and talk about it?
0: Absolutely. Look, China pursuing steps to internationalize Roman B not uh, as a first choice. The the reality is that Chinese policymakers have looked at the enormous costs that that the U.S. has. Born for allowing its currency to serve in this global utility role. and they've actually been quite wary and, and reticent of allowing their mm-hmm. currency to step up and, and absorb the financial imbalances from the rest of the world. And so they, they are only pursuing they're only pursuing the, these steps towards the internationalization of the Roman in absence of a better option.
3: Yeah that that's interesting again because that's sort of not how it's presented here but um, you know it's presented more as trying to you're gradually trying to um, take power but you're right you know if they uh, inherit the the advantages of a reserve currency they also inherit the disadvantages the primarily the the primary one I think must be they would have to free up their capital account and therefore lose some kind of control over, um, you know, over uh, the value of the currency, but also, you know, how individuals are, you know, holding their money and they might be able to get their money out of China. Um, Again, is that where you see potentially a role for Hong Kong in terms of, um, you know, allowing Chinese um, investors to hold international securities, but in a way that, you know, if it's done through Hong Kong, it still allows the central government to kind of understand and monitor that?
0: Well I mean the the, the Chinese face face some significant challenges. so we've we talked about the challenge of financial security risk by by depend or through dependency on on western controlled financial infrastructures. but you also got the the issue of of just very mundane things like a, anti-tax avoidance and anti-tax evasion. China doesn't have the power to impose FATCA on the rest of the world. So if they allow their citizens to go out and set up accounts elsewhere in the United States or Singapore or wherever it is, then it is far less easy for them to track that their own citizens are paying the appropriate amount of tax. So, I mean, there is a, there's certainly a role for Hong Kong in helping to intermediate that to give the chinese authorities that the same level of transparency that the US has managed to achieve through things like fatca and, and you know it's also got it's also a centre because of its unique status as part of china but running you know, a, an internationally recognized and accepted legal regulatory system it is also a centre in which you know chinese can Hold international securities and and, and you know, thereby derive the same benefits that Hong Kong is giving to international investors investing in the Chinese domestic market.
3: Um, I know we're getting close to uh, running out of time here, so I, I wanted to ask um, just a final question. In, in talking to people here in the U.S., um, I know you've talked to academics and some policymakers. Um, do What's your sense of their appreciation for the perspective you're putting forward in terms of what China is looking to do with its currency and what? Um, how how open do you think the people you've talked to are to the perspective of kind of deepening the financial integration between the two countries instead of competing?
0: As 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 you'd expect, I mean, there's there's uh, there's a multiplicity of different viewpoints. Generally, people are, are extremely courteous and polite mm-hmm. when they're speaking to me, and I, I do I, I, I perceive a sense of open-mindedness in many quarters you know, for reforms. You know whether or not that seeps through into the the kind of top echelons and, and the official position. I, I don't know.
3: Well, listen, James, um, thank you for taking the time to talk to us. And um, it's, uh, it's a book that I think we, we, you know people here in the West could really benefit from, from reading to get this kind of different perspective, both on the history and also um, you know, the possible ways forward. So th- thanks for writing the book and thanks for taking the time to uh, come and chat with us today.
0: Thank you very much, Kevin. It's been a pleasure.
3: Okay, Niels, um, we'll pass it back over to you.
2: Thank you so much, Kevin and James, for a fantastic conversation. The relationship between the US and China is perhaps more important today than ever before. And to get a first-hand account from James on what was behind the crackdown of technology firms in China, as well as the for-profit education firms, is really eye-opening. And the possible solution that James talks about in terms of creating more interdependencies in a way that would make it unthinkable for either the US or China to wield their financial arsenals against each other and thereby enhancing safety of both is very, very interesting. Make sure you go and follow James' and Kevin's work as well as getting a copy of their books because as you can tell from today's conversations, some of these ideas and topics are not being discussed on mainstream media. From Kevin and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each
1: other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.